Welcome back to another new episode in search of the perfect movie soundtrack. When the soundtrack needs the movie as much as the movie needs the soundtrack. I'm Joshua Weber. Hi, I'm Heather Samples. And I'm Matt Lombardi. Join us this week as we travel back to a time before Radiohead was Radiohead, before Heather joined the Manson family, as we discover the greatest movie sequel titles of all time, and that a butthole surfer by any other name does indeed smell as sweet. movie is uh, from 1996, Boz Lerman's William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Um, and the reason why I chose this movie was because we had been uh, kind of caught in this like dark spiral of a movie that we either really were willing to forgive Pretty in Pink for all of its failures because the music was so fantastic or a movie that uh, was unforgivable that we were willing to deal with anyway because again the music was so fantastic and we were kind of been talking about like what about the movies that are also good movies where someone has tried to make a real movie um and they have thought about making that real movie (laughs) with real music apologies (laughs) to all the other movies we've talked about i mean it sounds like a really basic bar to clear but it's kind of we're discovering more challenging than at least I would have thought. It's true. First. I agree. Uh, with that bit of context, um, here is what Boz Lerman, here's something Boz Lerman has to say about how he made this movie. Mm-hmm. I see music as part of the screenplay. There's almost three scripts. There's the visual language script, musical language script, and then there's the script. I write <laughs> it all back into the text. There's even a line when Romeo and Juliet are getting married, which says something like, I think, a young Stevie Wonder sings a choral version of When Doves Cry. It's in the script, which to me felt like this like really nice way of thinking about the craft of movie making right. that was different from where he, we had been before in our quest for this perfect soundtrack that doesn't exist yet. And I wanted to like start by asking you guys, do you think... That Boz Lerman's William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet lives up to that standard that he sets up for himself of like imagining these three different languages, these three different vernaculars of the dialogue and the script itself, what we see and what we hear. Well, I I think it's an interesting quote because I wonder if he's also thumbing his nose at his critics because one of the complaints about this movie for people who criticized it was, oh, this is just music video as feature film. And it has crept into it. But I mean, I don't know why that's a plus or a minus. You know what I mean? If it's a move you're doing and you're intertwining these techniques, this is what directors have done since the beginning of time and pulled in different ways to make stuff. So uh, to me, it's whether you can execute it well or not. And for the most part, I think he executes it well. He sets up his intentions, you see it, and then he executes it, and you're like, this is wholly his world, wholly his movie, um, and he's doing it. Yeah, I mean, it probably, I would imagine to a young person seeing this movie today, maybe does not seem as strange as it did at the time. Um, be, like you were commenting on uh, the uh, idea of, it being sort of like a music video being a criticism. And I think that that criticism probably stopped being made about movies a long time ago because you would just be making yeah. that criticism all the time. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I wonder if it, if, if that is just uh, a sign of the times that it was when the idea that film and music videos were 
like on two different ends of of a spectrum and that they they should not have anything to do with each other. I, yeah, I, I mean I I think he we we get we get like endless critiques actually in the in the moment in the contemporary moment of the movie about this this MTV sensibility um which I definitely think we should come back to and and I I kind of like that you guys are already sort of putting uh putting that in scare quotes as a response to the movie because it it does strike me as uh kind of funny in retrospect that that was the anxiety about the movie that it uh yeah that, not, that it could be appealing in that way not yeah. since talkies took over silent film no. <laughs> right, did, we, right. did we have <laughs> such criticism All right, here's another thing that I think we need to get uh, get upfront about this movie, which is uh, Claire Danes and Leo DiCaprio. Let's do it. And I say that not because they are these icons of of the '90s and this like romantic duo, but more because I think that um, if we didn't have them in these roles, that we would perhaps be experiencing the music differently. And one of one of my thoughts about that is how young. And totally uh, open and raw, they both seem in this movie. Claire Danes has already done uh, some My So-Called Life. In fact, it's Jane Campion who recommends Claire Danes to Boz Lerman as a potential uh, casting move after Natalie Portman proves to be too scary to watch with Leo because she's too young and it looks creepy. Did they, t- like, they test screened but- Natalie Portman? It wasn't all the way to a test screening, but uh, there there was a you know Boslerman brings DiCaprio and Portman together to see what he thinks of the chemistry, and Interesting. he's and he's wigged the fuck out by twenty one year old Leo and like fourteen year old Natalie. Oh, she's that young because Danes is only 16. Danes is only sixteen or seventeen, I think. I mean, it's it's surprising that DiCaprio is twenty one. I thought he was twenty two. Well, I, whatever, he looks 14. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he has that cherubic young look. So Boz decides that it's gone too far. It's that uh, Natalie Portman looks like somebody who'd be wearing panties, right? <laughs> Our ongoing so we get panty. Claire Danes and we get in like the beginning of her height. She's done enough My So-Called Life that Jane Campion's paying attention to her. Um, and then we get Leo having just come off of, uh, or just about to be nominated for What's Eating Gilbert Grape, um, mm-hmm. and having done TV, right, uh, where where he started with our buddy Kirk Cameron, right? Oh yeah, Growing Pains. But he has not done Titanic yet, and he has not become. He's done Basketball Diaries. So there's like a, a there's a strain of people who see these two actors as like their people. Um, and he, and neither of them has really hit that massive, massive moment until this movie, which is the, which is kind of the, the big, big deal for both of them. Are you, are, this is the movie that makes Leonardo DiCaprio huge? Titanic worthy? It is the movie that I think what, I think Matt just got it. It's what makes him Titanic worthy. Obviously what he does in Titanic is what makes him. Well, sure. Yeah. But I mean, I guess, I guess, I guess I didn't realize how maybe it was a big move how big this movie was and for he, him in his career he was he's a serious movie choice maker when you follow his career after titanic he can just go into like you know rom-com world or do whatever and he's I also think, hanging out with scorsese all the time after that yeah he gets to apparently his dad told him you need um what de niro had you need a scorsese and then he just ended up with Scorsese anyway, which is funny. Yeah, he's like, okay, well, I'll find us Scorsese. <laughs> apparently, that's the story. And then, and then it works out for him. He's like, oh, I don't know, I just use Scorsese. But <laughs> um, it's interesting because I think this is the moment where he does this, he does heartthrob, and he can just, I mean, heartthrob, he does Titanic, and he can just ride out the heartthrob thing and go on that wild, like, Matthew McConaughey ride or something and see where it takes him. But he's obviously making with what's eating Gilbert Grape, Basketball Diaries, serious choices. But let's talk about the soundtrack for a second. 
So we've got two volumes, volume one, volume two. Volume one uh, comes out at the time of the movie's release. Volume two comes out later, has some bonus tracks on it that either appeared briefly in the movie and were not included on the official soundtrack or were part of uh, the like orchestral um, music. Volume one has a few pretty big players for this moment in time. We've got some garbage. We've got the butthole surfers. We've got the one cardigan song that when I say the cardigans is now playing in your head. That's as best as bubblegum pop's going to get you. The fucking cardigans. Love me, love me. I think that is such that you for a love me. <laughs> Fool me, fool me. Just go on and fool me. That's what she sounds like to me. <laughs> this duet, this duet you guys are doing is just pure, pure chemistry. Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton right <laughs> oh my here. Oh, God. I, Joshua, you are definitely an island in the stream. <laughs> and uh, and there's some Radiohead. Um, and then there are there, there are some other smaller songs that uh, are actually like kind of interesting and well worth your time, I think, but are from folks that would not ring a bell. It, you don't you don't think everybody's interested in hearing mm-hmm. about one inch punch? <laughs> and 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 there is one inch punch. One inch punch sounds like a bad kung fu movie. Well that's what it's named after, I guess. I I mean I looked it up. Yeah. It is not named after that. Oh. Penis size. Uh oh wait, that was my first the, thought. The one inch punch guys w- were at a staples looking for inspo. <laughs> oh, oh. And uh man, I will tell you what, if you if anybody listening to this is thinking about starting a band and you're having trouble finding a name, I recommend going to Staples. <laughs> what in the hell? I, I can't even think of a worse place to go if you're trying to think of a name of a band. I mean, um, so anyway, that's that's an overview of, of what you're what you're going to get on this soundtrack. The these filler tracks like there's iconic tracks, there's big bands, bands who then go on like Radiohead to become even bigger than anyone would have thought. But the the filler tracks gives it its sense of being a huge '90s mixtape. Like it, it, part of it when I was listening to it works to it its advantage because not everything is like a banger, not everything is like this perfect iconic song. You know, now every song it seems like has to be iconic in a movie almost, and it's almost like a sleepy one that maybe if you heard a bunch of times you might get really into it for a few years and you wouldn't have. It's just like get stuck in your head or it's a secret favorite song of other people's. Um, and I felt that some of those songs were bad, but strangely it gave me that mixtape vibe. Oh man, I, I, I really, you're so right, Matt. Like I, I, I like buy that, that argument for the way that the soundtrack like kind of bounces between these different moments. Really, really. Yeah. That was my experience of it too. And, and also at the same time, if you listen to it from start to finish, as though it's just an album, totally divorced from the movie. It feels like it's of a piece. Like mm-hmm. you're not, you're not being. Mm-hmm. You don't get that like sense of whiplash that you do on some soundtracks <laughs> that you listen to as an album, where track three is right. in uh, a completely different mood or headspace or genre than track yeah. four is. This is like yeah. well, well curated to be in the same language and like. It never feels engineered for crossover appeal. Yes, or to or you know, that kind of stuff, which happens with soundtracks and then they get the hit and the other thing. And then they try to like expand Um, their audience. Joshua, what do you think one of the standout songs on this soundtrack is? Radiohead, right? You want me? Well, come on and break the down. You want me? But it's pre-Radiohead royalty before they've like... So they've done... They had a... They're, 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 they're borderline a one-hit wonder in the sense that Creep is a huge hit song. And then their next album, which is absolutely an incredible record, is not... Doesn't really... It doesn't have a hit on US radio, that's for sure. It's not really that big an album. And... The Benz. The Benz, yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, I think that um they've... They're really good, and uh, they've 
got enough cred and people like them enough and enough people know that the Benz is good that it's not like they were going to break up or something. But it's definitely a moment where it's like, yeah, they're not a huge, huge band um, for this brief, brief little moment that this movie comes out because the movie is right before OK Computer comes out. And at that point, of course, we all know that story. Um, So if you want to hear sort of them in between the bends, which is um, really a guitar album, mostly like, um, I mean, it's, it's a, one of the great guitar albums in my opinion. And, uh, but you know, it's, it's leaning heavily on the guitar for its main source of uh, weird sounds and, and energy. And that starts to change. And it cha- by the time, okay, computer come out, comes out, it has changed a lot to the point that, you know, it's hard to even identify what songs, um, where the guitar is in some of the songs, but talk show host is sort of in between there. It's a really good song. And it uh, sends everyone back to the bends. Well, yeah. And then, then the bends gets you... discovered in a huge way because when they're touring on okay computer, they're also playing songs from the bends and it's absolutely enormous. Uh, and they have a role in that Alanis Morissette documentary because they were, uh, touring with her right around this time. And everybody hated them because they're there to see jagged little pill, not these, guys who are writing these you know insular sort of songs as opposed to the songs on jagged little pill which are not at all self-indulgent insular you can sing along to them in a way that it doesn't feel like that you know true 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 that is something heather hates is alanis motherfucking morissette is that what heather hates all right heather hates alanis morissette good to know i we will avoid i wish i could think of a soundtrack to name that uh she's on i'm sure she's on a couple uh, the the song that is on this by Radiohead did not appear on any of their records. Talk show host appears first when we are introduced to Romeo. So it's one of the most prominently featured songs in the uh, movie. It plays for a long time. It's a very uh, big scene. And apparently the reason that Radiohead is so prominently featured, because they also have the song that is during the closing credits, is because Tom York was shown um, some early footage or something like that and absolutely loved it and was really into it. And if you listen to Exit Music for a Film, which is on, plays during the credits and then comes out on OK Computer, it's it's pretty funny how much it is about the movie. And you wouldn't ever, or I certainly would not have expected uh, that of a Radiohead song. But now knowing this and listening to it again, you can really hear that it's like, oh yeah, Tom York is actually responding to this movie in this song that I always associated with that whole okay computer, you know, uh, disembodied society thing. Not quite the Romeo and Juliet love story tragedy that uh, I guess Tom York was actually thinking about, or it seems like he was he was thinking about quite a bit when he wrote it. Wake from your sleep Drying up your tears today. We escape. We escape. Interesting to hear a band that became so much associated with a type of personality um, and a type of sound associated with something that you wouldn't necessarily put them with like a Boz Lerman film and Radiohead they yeah. seem like very different things but actually no they they weren't at least in this moment um you know Tom York was was way into it thought it was great but you know it's even crazier the band this is what i was reading that the band credits this moment of working on this song for the film and being so inspired by it by opening them up and inspiring them so much that it was changing their sound and leading them to a song like exit music for a film, which then led them to make okay computer. So how's that? How's that Heather Romeo and Juliet made Radiohead. Even if this movie had sucked and been a huge failure, it would still be a success. Yeah. I mean, actually that is. Yeah. Isn't that crazy though? Yeah. I, I, to come back to like, what is the perfect soundtrack? I mean, there's a part of me that's like the perfect soundtrack is the one that allows the movie to be better than it would otherwise be because of the music. And also next level allows the music or the band or the the musicians themselves to be better than they could have been if they hadn't been part of the soundtrack. 
I don't think we're going to find a whole lot of uh, other soundtracks that are doing that. Maybe I'll be surprised, but I would be shocked if that's a regular thing that soundtracks <laughs> are doing. I think that is a really rare kind of artistic dialogue between uh, people working in two different media or um, and and that's like that's pretty that's pretty fucking heartwarming you guys that's artists talking <laughs> to artists about their work in different ways a huge leo fan are we big fans of him in this movie in this movie um i'm i i, I, I won't say i was a big fan claire danes looks so much more comfortable yes i thought he seemed a little stilted especially in the first like uh 15 minutes or so but um you know and he's he, owned complete movies he's like you know he's done gilbert great basketball diaries right. he's like taken over movies and been great he um but he got he he either he got nominated or won best actor at a film festival. Um, I can't remember which one. It's one of the, one of the somewhat bigger ones. So, I mean, other people thought he was good. I think one of the things that kind of sucks for both Claire Danes and Leo DiCaprio in this movie is how uh, much the movie is just stolen out from under them by a couple of the supporting actors. That Mercutio dude. Dude. And John Leguizamo is perfectly cast in it. Leguizamo is great. Okay, Matt, tell us, for someone who hasn't seen this movie recently, tell us how to picture the Mercutio of this rendition. I don't know. I'm not familiar with Romeo and Juliet. You know, that's interesting. I'm, I am uh, not that familiar with Romeo and Juliet either, oddly. Um, and I like we know the big hits and the big lines. Yeah, no, I was I, you I was know, when he's like a plague on both houses. I'm like, okay, I was often asking uh, my wife, Kelsey, for uh, uh, OK, so wait. So so this is this is this person, whatever, just updates on on the play itself. It's definitely a blind spot. I've never seen it performed. Um, I read it out loud in class in like high school. But, you know, you can imagine how much attention I was paying. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. I took a Shakespeare class in college. It wasn't one of the ones we did. Um, it's, yeah. Cause it's considered like Shakespeare's juvenilia. Uh, well, I, here's, here's my thinking about the way that we get Mercutio in, in this movie. And it doesn't, it's not because I'm, I have any like meaningful knowledge of Shakespeare. I do not. Uh, but I think that you don't have to, to be kind of dumbstruck by how, uh, this version of that character is just arrestingly experiencing and performing gender and sex. He is an incredibly sexy character in this movie, and he is the farthest thing from the kind of uh, character you would expect to be playing sexy in 1996. He's in drag some of the time. He's leaning into all of the like double entendre quips that are in the Shakespeare. Um, he he's joking about uh, giving and receiving mm -hmm. and playing with mm -hmm. the with the Shakespearean dialogue. He, uh, he he understands the jab that Leguizamo gives about uh, Mercutio potentially being a consort of Romeo's. Like he's really aware of. Um, all of his own sexual capacity when he gives Romeo the ecstasy pill to bring him to the ball at the Capulet mansion. Uh, he's doing it in this like very seductive way. We get this like beautiful zoom in up on his face with this dark lipstick. Yeah. Anyway, this, he's kind this... of stunningly uh, on fire in a way that I think is pretty pretty progressive for 96. Yeah, it, it was because I was experiencing this all very uncomfortably in 1996. <laughs> I knew it was cool and I wanted to be down with it. With what exactly? Just with like the gender bendy, intimate, um, queer culture stuff going on. And I was like, this is fucking cool. I'm down wanting to be cool. But, you know, from my repressed Catholic upbringing, I was like, oh my God. And I was like, remember getting uncomfortable and thought they were like pushing these boundaries that were not nudity or language and pushing these other boundaries. I didn't quite understand. I just knew it made me uncomfortable. And then I, th it was obviously a good experience for me to, cause I was like, this is cool. I want to know more about this or understand it more. But I remember being like, 
not put off, just I guess made uncomfortable by it. Did you see it in the theater? I can't remember. I was trying to think about it. I think I've seen it maybe twice my whole life. And I might have seen it in the theater. Um, I definitely saw it when it came out. I just remember being bombarded by it too. And every girl I knew couldn't wait to see it, was obsessed with it. And it seemed, um, you know, offbeat or uh, uh, transgressive in a way. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely playing on the edges. And like, like Wasamo is doing the same thing. He's got this like insanely erotic mm-hmm. presence in this movie. He's so bodily. Anyway, between the two of them, that's where like the sex story is. And, and, and instead, we're being asked to pay attention to Leonardo and Claire like kind of fumbling yeah, around in, in the sheets and in the pool kissing. I think they're doing a good job for being fairly young in their careers with a challenging and like very uh, transportive reality that they're responsible for carrying us through and into. But at the same time, they are competing with some supporting cast that has like real fire in them in a way that Leo cannot Claire and Leo don't bring the rampant on the edge almost out of control sexual energy. I don't know if I've ever seen him oh, actually come on. do that. Yeah. Wolf of Wall Street? Oh, that's a that's a really good... Um, yeah, because maybe that's the first time for me, actually. I thought the uh, the casting... I'm sorry if I'm interrupting you here. The uh, as, far as, we're, as long as we're on casting, um, I was really excited by the casting of both of the dads. Um, <laughs> that's the first I mean, thing I noticed. That- Brian Dennehy and Paul Servino. Yeah, I just immediately, you know, and this probably speaks to my own movie taste and my age and other things that I was just like, hell yeah, Servino and Dennehy, let's go. I love, I love Brian Dennehy. Yeah, Servino sure. is another example of like a supporting character who's full of just like fire in the belly and intensity and like really, really uh, heightened, passionate expression and affect. And again, like makes Leo look like a clown. I would imagine that for some of these guys, the opportunity to for an American to get to do a Shakespeare movie is probably pretty exciting. You know, especially maybe to a Servino. I don't really know. I assume that he's a stage guy. I don't really know. But I started to yeah. assume it from this movie because I know, Don, you know, Dennehy is your seasoned stage guy who's like the ultimate Willie Loman and all that shit. But I was like, I just thought Servino was a mafia movie guy. And seeing this, I was like, oh, does he have stage chops? I have no idea, but um, I guess I'm, I I'm just sort of assuming he probably does. Um, and that if you were somebody like that who is asked to do mob movies all the time, and that is your movie yeah. uh, uh, persona, that getting the opportunity to do Shakespeare must be really exciting. Yeah, I yeah. think that uh, yeah. the, older, the older members of the cast are really doing something quite cool. Including the woman uh, who plays Juliet's nurse, who later becomes uh, she's, she's the going. botany professor in the HP movies. What? In what movies? In the Harry Potter movies. <laughs> oh, okay. I was wondering what I recognized her from. Um, she's That actress is going all in. I mean, she is giving it her all. <laughs> Every scene, she's just like chewing up the entire screen i mean she's well, all is over Lerman just yelling at everyone to do that like is he's like okay do it again Probably. but hump the air six more times or do it again <laughs> and stare at someone like you're gonna rip their flesh off like it's so intense the movie gives you this impression that you will you will not be given a moment's rest as a viewer that you will have to live inside the world that Boz Lerman has created for you without um without any like respite from it. Um, I was going to say the movie comes out of the, the gate insane. And then the energy is so insane. And uh, it's like enthralling and you're like, holy shit. And then I was wondering, it feels to lull for me. And I was like, has the movie not been able to keep up this rapid insanity song after song, scene after scene, or was I just getting exhausted from it? And was I not able to keep up with the movie? But it feels like it hits a lull and gets a little boring before it crescendos at the end. Or was I just getting Baz Luhrmann fatigue? I think it's entirely possible that both are true. Um, I, I, I also started to grow weary, uh, feeling like I, a lot was being demanded of me as a viewer. And yeah. that I, that I and, wasn't and sure. And Shakespeare I, on top of it. 
Yeah. And it's Shakespeare on top of it. I mean, I watched it with closed captions on so that I had mm-hmm. a better shot at like keeping track of everything that was going on. Um, but anyway, it's it's asking a lot of us. It's also interspersing this contemporary pop music with a lot of opera to keep us in that like hyper elevated emotional state. And I'll be there just helping you out whenever I can. Thing that, but the omission from this soundtrack is rapper hip hop. Right when it's exploding, is it? Is it because he's Australian? I mean, it's pretty eclectic, <laughs> and you're pulling from everywhere. And I feel like if that was in some of the scenes, it would have solidified its um, myth and greatness a little more. When when the movie opens and we, and we get uh, the Montague boys doing their like thrashing in the convertible i feel like it's yeah. supposed to have some hip-hop vibe to it that's even though it sort that. of has like more a little bit like yeah. thrash i love that gas station scene though what a way to open this oh my god again like wasamo like he's <laughs> just so funny and then it's like cartoonish and then J- what is that guy's name jamie kennedy from scream keeps getting hit in the head with a purse <laughs> it is a very <laughs> slapstick movie very slapstick like there's yeah. a lot like there's a lot of knocking things over, tripping on your own feet. Uh, a lot of I appreciated stuff. that though, because I it, appreciate it, that too because it feels theatrical. To ask if Shakespeare, if if Romeo and Juliet was was that slapstick, and I was told that it's not that slapstick. It kind of reframed it. Well, I think that that's uh, that's not true across all of Shakespeare. Though. Well, I, yeah, I know other I think ones. It are. goes it goes for lowbrow sure. humor. Lowbrow humor. Um, Matt, tell us about Butthole Surfers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the Butthole Surfers song stands out, and it it's strange that it's one of the songs that's not in the movie that's on the soundtrack, because it feels like it could have easily been in the movie. <laughs> It has this kind of, I don't know, intense background um, build to it that seems cinematic, but it might be because of the singing style, maybe, and it's so talky. And I was looking at the lyrics. I really like the lyrics to this song. They're really interesting to me. And I was having this moment where there's a part where he says, Here's to the Montagues, John Wayne and Betty Davis, and Romeo. He waved before his curls girl and beggar's hair. It totally sounds like it could be Lou Reed doing it. And then read those lyrics again now that you want us to think about them in a Lou Reed voice. Here's to the Montagues. Here's to the Montagues. John Wayne. (laughs) That's pretty good. And and Betty Davis and Romeo. He waved before this chorus girl and beggar's hair. 70s Lou Reed, though, not like a Velvet Underground Lou Reed. And then I and then I was listening to it and I was like, wow, the dude from the Butthole Surfers, um, what's his name, Joshua? Gibby Gibby Haynes. Gibby Haynes is such a great talk singer. Is he one? Is he one of the greatest talk singers of the '90s? Cake be damned, because Cake never gets to the Lou Reed place, or sometimes even the Bob Dylan place. And then I just started thinking of they had the same year they had that breakout hit Pepper. I still love that song. That I'm a song- huge fan of that song. That was this great moment in the 90s when you can just write everything under the guise of like alternative rock and kind of do these little like art rock, weird talk, sing hook songs with hooks. And he talks sings great in that, too, and it gets stuck in your head and he's kind of singing low and kind of talking. And then I was like, maybe that was just competing with Shakespeare and it was too verbal and it needed more of the emotional instrumental swell. So it never made it in the movie, but it was cool enough that they put it on the soundtrack. I could imagine if somebody's talking about Betty Davis, that would sort of jar up against uh, what you were looking at. 
Yeah, some of the lines in here are so funny. Juliet is up in heaven, a pocket full of pills, and Jesus drives to Mexico to get her prescription filled. There's just like <laughs> great stuff. And then right before the solo. He says, rock out, whatever. Yeah, he goes, yeah, rock out, whatever. I love it. That's my favorite part. Yeah, rock out, whatever. And then at the then at the very end, he says, that's it. That's my rhyme. Take it to the streets, biatch. And it's like, he's being very poetic and interesting, I think. But then he's also being like, this means nothing. I'm just fucking Totally with you. irreverent. And it's that sneering irony of the 90s that I fell in love with. I, I think, too, pavement. if you hear those <laughs> lyrics and you're like, and you didn't, if you didn't hear the song, you would be expecting it to be like a really playful sound. But it mm. actually doesn't sound that playful like it's it's mood isn't isn't playful at all yeah and it gets dark at the end yeah but it makes sense why it's not in the movie i guess when they would play live they would show like uh on the big screens behind them and um this was mostly happening at small clubs because for most of their career that's where they were but there is this moment where they have this one hit song on the same record that this song comes out on, not the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack, but their own record, Electric Larry Land, that Pepper's on. So they, for a moment, they're actually in front of larger crowds and they would show on the big screens behind them uh, different kinds of surgery <laughs> and things like that. I mean, they were super confrontational. Well, their name is very confrontational. And, uh, you know, terror or not silly terror was like a part of what they were into. So yeah, they're... they're their sounds never, it never, their songs never sound as silly as the lyrics do. Well, do you know where they got their name from? I think you should remind us, Matt. Well, I was thinking you guys were just talking about one inch, one inch uh, punch and names. Yeah, they, yeah. The butthole servers also got their name from Staples. It's really, <laughs> <laughs> it was that same day too. It was very strange. Um, no, it was because they had a song called Butthole Surfer, and the um, guy introducing them at some show referred to them as got it confused as the butthole surfers and they thought that was so funny so they went with it but they used to play shows under different names all the time in the beginning before they just became butthole surfers and i'm going to give you a multiple choice quiz right now which one of these band names was not a butthole surfers band name all right here are your choices fred astaire's asshole <laughs> The right to eat Fred Astaire's asshole. That's, that's great. The inalienable right to eat Fred Astaire's <laughs> asshole. Or the butthole kayakers. So you're saying one of these is not. Is, is not. The, the rest are. So, so at least three of these are actual titles. That they've played under at shows. Okay, could you read them again, please? <sighs> you're going to make me say this again, yeah. you son of a bitch. Okay. Fred Astaire's asshole. The right to eat Fred Astaire's asshole. The inalienable right to eat Fred Astaire's asshole. The butthole kayakers. I, I, have, an, I have a guess. Okay. I, I have a guess as well. Do you want to say it? Ready? Say it at the same time. One, two, three. Two. B. B. <laughs> two. Same. All right. It yes. is the butthole kayakers. They used oh. all the variations of Fred Astaire's asshole. Oh, my God. This was a great. trick question. <laughs> all right. What's the next song? <laughs> What's the next um, song in the soundtrack? Well, before we move on, let's uh, talk a little bit more. I actually have a story about Fred Astaire's butthole. <laughs> that, uh, no. It's asshole. Have some respect. So this is kind of a fun thing. I don't know whether, maybe, do you all know about um, Gibby Haynes' dad? Oh, no. This is Texas is that, territory, too. This is, yeah. Is that, I, I guess this is a national story yes, thing. Tell so us. So anybody who might hear this in Texas is like, yeah, dude, come on. Everybody knows He this. was like a children's show post or something? Yeah. There was a children's okay, show. I do um, know this. I, you know, when I was a kid, it was on, you know, it was on forever. It was on for decades and, uh, Mr. Peppermint <laughs> and it was a, you know, he's kind of, kind of a Mr. Rogersy personality and that he was just like a, a, an older guy who was very nice. Um, but he had a little puppet with him, um, who he talked to and, uh, he wore a peppermint, uh, striped suit and he had a cane and <laughs> there was just always the fun moment when you're like, uh, a teenager or whatever. And, and then, you know, you always get into the butthole surfers as a name before. I mean, at least in Texas, like you would hear about them. Yeah. And so you you would kind of with your friends, you'd be like, Oh, I love the butthole surfers. They're awesome. But you maybe even hadn't heard them yet. Um, cause this is before pepper when they actually had a song (laughs) on the radio and, um, 
there, so there's always the funny moment where it's like, dude, you know who his dad is? And also this is like, you know, pre-Wikipedia. So it's kind of mind blowing. And, and you debate it. Of course, no way. That's not true. And then, you know, every once in a while he would, they'd make an appearance together or he'd go on the show or it was just a, a, you know, they both knew that it was very, very funny that his dad was this children's show guy. Yeah. It's, it's super nineties cool too. Cause that's when everyone was getting into like postmodern TV shit and, you know, like childhood actors and old sitcoms and just discussing that and unpacking that whole world. And we were starting to get all postmodern, dare I say about it. Like remember in reality bites when they sit around playing a game, trying to name good times episodes or what's happening episodes or something like that was very of a moment. Anyway, uh, Joshua, I I have every intention as soon as we're done recording tonight to look up Mr. Peppermint. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Jerry Haynes. I'm looking it up now. Oh, wow. Damn. He looks like he runs a taffy shop down at the shore. <laughs> there are three, in case our listeners haven't figured it out yet, there are exactly three parts of the United States that between us we have covered to an extraordinary degree of belief and knowledge. They are Texas, <laughs> West Virginia, and Jersey. And ooh, I just showed my hand when I said down at the shore. Don't you we, really we, did. We need to. Uh, we, we are currently taking applications for a West Coast consultant. <laughs> Anyone from uh do we need a Midwesterner? Do we need a flyover uh, host? I think, you know, the Midwest is they're they're always jamming their ideas down our throats, you know. Us, <laughs> us out here on the coast, we're trying to, you know, keep clear of of those yeah. people and their opinions. Ah, their elitism is driving me I crazy. I think we're good. The Chicagoans are very into their record collections and would expect us to have all kinds of knowledge all the time that we don't have. We should do the Chicago soundtrack. Musical. Oh, no, we did Pretty in Pink. That was Chicago. Fuck them. We're done. They got their episode. I am hard-pressed to think of a woman in music I hated more in my adolescent heart than Shirley Manson. Really? Gwen, Gwen Stefani is the only uh, contender that I can think of. Well, that that has borne good fruit for you because that that is that is the correct answer. <laughs> I thought everyone either liked or was neutral about Shirley. Um, I forgot her name. Shirley Manson. I mean, I don't know how everybody felt. I know that... Uh, that I thought that band was like a constructed band made, a, yeah, and which is which is true. They were, they are they were producers, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, and I thought it was like full of posers, and I thought, <laughs> and and I thought that the the stupid girl song was posers so unbearable. In the moment, I I would I would have just I would have been unable to listen to a garbage song. I could not have taken it seriously. I was too worried about what cool was. And too convinced that it wasn't cool. It's I yeah I agree now. I was thinking of them retrospectively, but in and the now that I'm 43 right. years old, I don't have to worry about being cool. Uh, and so I'm listening to this song, and I realize like this is a very enjoyable piece of music. So I chose it because it I changed my mind. Like because you're not cool anymore. I I can I can really <laughs> get down with this. And here is here is like. How I, I think you guys should just—I I want you to hear it for for a second. I want you to like listen to uh, to to the beginning of this of this song. Now, how much does that sound like Portis Head and Massive Attack? It's got some real dummy to it, which comes out uh, just a couple of years before Dummies 94. Uh, mezzanine has, uh, I mean, this is this is what uh, this is what Massive wow. Attack's mezzanine sounds like. 
Yeah, I can hear it. Right? Similarity. Yeah, Are sure. You There's something there. And I think that you can, like, I actually went down quite a, a long rabbit hole about this where I started uh, listening to Ronnie Size and Tricky. How fucking good is that? Uh, is that early Tricky album? And and like listening to all of this uh, sort of early electronica and 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 trip hop and trying to figure out why uh, on earth I had been such a bitch about Shirley Manson. <laughs> so I, mean, I stand seems... I, I stand corrected, and I would like to I would like to tell. Do you want to apologize? I, I want to apologize to my eighteen year old self for denying her. Right. The music was, she might have enjoyed. I thought she might apologize to Shirley Manson as well. Probably not. I, that no. seems oh, okay. excessive. Right. <laughs> we'll, get her, we'll get her on the show. You can you can hash it out. But I think it was for me. I when you said you you hated her, I was like, what are you talking about? And then when you went back in the time machine to the moment, I was like, oh yeah, I felt that way too. And there was this real moment where if things sounded synthetic, you were like, that's not real or earnest. It was kind of like a like. You know, like the Dylan goes electric uh, moment. It was like electric music goes into, or I mean, uh, rock music, electric rock goes into like kind of dabbling electronica and growing from there. And I feel like it was that kind of moment. And we were the people yelling at Dylan for plugging in his guitar and then quickly won over by the next album. I went back and listened to some garbage, by the way, to really test this theory. (laughs) How How to go? Well, you know, stupid girl is it, it's still like it oh, yeah, still feels to me like sandpaper on my cheeks it's just like I, I can't deal with how grating it is but there are lots of other songs that are like if i met this song and didn't know who it was or where it came from i think i'd probably i'd probably listen to that you anyway i encourage part? anyone i encourage any of the women of uh the very tail end of gen x to Consider a re-listen on Shirley Manson, who What's I am. The- I'm convinced I am uh, among a very large cohort of cool girls who found her just in, just horrible. She's in the Atlantis doc and sounds very cool and smart in it. If that means what? anything to you, my Heather. God! How many people are in this Atlantis doc? I mean, and every single person in who had an album out in the '90s is contractually obligated to speak. <laughs> To, of the woman who sold 25 million records or whatever. It's so, yeah, it's like top 10 all time, second ever for a woman. It's like what the, the amount fuck? Of are you shitting me? That's how you second get ever record. for a woman? Yeah. It was just like they couldn't sell them fast enough. And then people like uh, Shirley Manson. Manson. It's, <laughs> God, it's the easiest forget. possible <laughs> name to remember. Good Lord. I, I was about to say Shirley McLean. <laughs> Anyway, when Shirley Temple got on the scene. I have a soundtrack question. I remember that the uh, this movie was very, um, it was promoted heavily. And I remember being inundated on MTV and things like that for for this movie and ads for it. And if I remember correctly, I think the ad played the Prince When Doves Cry version during the ad. I wonder if so. The choir singing like a, a boys choir or a youth choir singing the the unexpected pop song or you know radiohead or something like that has become like basically cliche to the point that you know there's now like i've seen like backlash to it where it's like okay stop stop with the boys choir singing the pixies or something like that it works and it's often credited to social networks yeah i was just gonna say that was a recent but i'm wondering if it actually might go to this i'm wondering if did was there it might go to the line in the fucking script that says a young stevie wonder sings when doves cry i wonder if if we could go if we'll find other movies earlier that are doing this trick and i'm calling it a trick because that's kind of what it becomes and that what it has become now but um at the the time it was really cool i mean it definitely in the preview i remember being struck by by the, the the movie looking really cool but the sound that was happening with it being really cool are you guys talking about this as a trick 
because it's coming from children or do you just mean like uh, a choir? The juxtaposition of choir choir singing like a pop pop song song, or a song you wouldn't expect a choir to sing. Which Which is a sister act. Well, yeah, okay, sure, a little bit. But I mean, the much more serious. It's it's usually done in these movies where it's like meant to be very heavy. So sister act two. (laughs) Yes, I mean, it is like back in the habit. That's true. Back in the habit, you knew it. <laughs> in a town near me this last summer, I believe, they they had a uh, a youth play that was uh, Sister Act Junior. I wanted to go. I didn't. But uh, it seems like it's probably a fun idea. I don't know I what they would do with the, with the uh, hooker character uh, and all that. But, you know. Well, it's they've, they've, they've figured that There's out. There's a hooker character in the Bible. They'll be fine with it. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's like there are definitely some parts of my Catholic upbringing and education yeah, that yeah. that really stuck with me. I know yeah, there are yeah. hookers in the when, Bible. When you guys are talking about <laughs> choir boys, I wasn't triggered either. Yeah, sorry. My cla- cra- Catholic. They weren't wearing panties. Um, oh my god! I will say one <laughs> one thing that I don't know whether whether it will put it in or not. But one thing about but whole surfers. Um, hang on, let me say do that a little cleaner. So cleaner speaking to. Joshua. Excuse me? I said clean your butthole. Good. I just wanted to get a clean take of that. So <laughs> Thank you. Well played, Joshua. Uh, he's back in the habit. That, that speaking- killed me. <laughs> Heather almost spit her water all over the mic. Back in the habit is really just funny. I'm sorry. <laughs> I wish we were at the meeting and someone's like, I got it. Sister Act oh, two. you know that was a killer. The moment somebody said it, the whole room was just like, "Yes!" Yeah. I mean, that's such a no-brainer. Yeah. Like you're always looking for that kind of title of something, right? Where it's just like the moment it occurs to you, you know that not one person is going to argue with you. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. It's gold. Yeah. yeah, too fast, too furious. Oh, back speaking of habit. speaking of gold, City Slickers Two: The Legend of Curly's Gold. <laughs> <laughs> if the, is there a Jeopardy category of sequels? Because sequel taglines, you would kill it um you know i would definitely what about be... naked gun 2 do you remember oh damn it i don't man i wish i could remember i wish i wish you had asked me one of the ones i knew so i could look what like a you... savant. oh it's a bad one it's the smell of fear that naked gun 2 is the smell of fear yeah oh god i definitely wouldn't have got must that. have been a reference to something that's not popular yeah anymore. I'm, I'm sure wait what well, i cut you off you were going for another one. Oh, uh yeah that's right you can do mannequin 2 on the move okay so my history lesson is this is definitely the best Shakespeare soundtrack ever. And the 90s was Gaga for Shakespeare. And do you remember how many Shakespeare adaptations there were? It was just a thing going on. No. And you didn't see it in the 80s. But do you remember it all starts with Mel Gibson as Hamlet in 1990? Oh, sure. What? Okay. Yes. Holy let me, shit. Let me jog your memory. And the reason I know this is because Emily is just one of those Shakespeare people. And that's why, remember I was telling you she went to see this Romeo and Juliet four times in the theater with her friends. And she was just a Shakespeare nerd and then loved Claire Danes. It actually wasn't a Leo thing. So I was like, was it a Leonardo DiCaprio thing? She was like, no, we were just Shakespeare nerds and we were into theater. And she still has friends who are like design costumes and do makeup on TV shows because they were her theater nerd friends. And she knows every single 90s adaptation. So I was looking up a list and there's Mel Gibson is Hamlet. Lawrence Fishburne is also Othello. The O one with Styles. There's a really good, the Titus one by Julie Taymor is insane. Have you ever seen that? No, it's, no, no, but that sounds good. Actually so saying like people with their arms ripped off and branches stuck in them with blue paint covering that. It's just like 1999 at the end of it. And, um, uh, what's his face is in it. Alan Cumming is in it and he's amazing. But then you have like really the one that might've put the nail in the coffin. There was a Midsummer Night's Dream made with Kevin Klein, Sam Rockwell, I've Michelle Pfeiffer, Rupert Edward, Stanley Tutrick, Callista Flockhart, Christian Bale. It's, it's Callista Flockhart. Bless you, her. You have 12th Night with, um, 
Helena Bonham Carter, of course, she's right for it. Kenneth Branagh was like making and producing every other one. You have the other big one was Much Ado About Nothing with Denzel Washington and Keanu Reeves was in it and Michael Keaton. They're just really funny um, cast to me. 10 Things I Hate About You is The Taming of the Shrew. Richard uh, the, the, also Julia Stiles. Also Julia Stiles. Hamlet with the Kenneth Branagh ha- Hamlet from 1996. The is four hour one. Unbelievable. Stellar. It is yeah. incredible. Yeah, that is always at the top of adaptation list. And then Richard the Third. there's an Ian McClellan, Richard the Third. Oh, the I should watch that. that. I don't think I've up. seen that. But anyway, it was just stock full of it. And I was thinking, sorry, Heather, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, I think that 10 Things About You is an interesting uh point of comparison to Boz Lerman's William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet because uh, Boz Lerman allows the Shakespeare to be what it is in, in his own, like through his own eyes. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, 10 things I hate about you feels the need to like recontextual, to just borrow the plot and recontextualize um, in a way that is uh, not Pretty. nearly as effective. I don't think. Yeah, and pretty removed from. Yeah, but I think I mean, I think that if you asked high school English teachers, how do you help kids find these works accessible? That a lot of them assigned uh, Bos Lerman's Romeo and Juliet, and I think also plenty of them probably have assigned Ten Things I Hate About You as a mm-hmm. as an on ramp to Taming of the Shrew, and um, and I and I think that like. There's something value about that. I'm always going to be the one who's uh, interested in how movies for teenagers uh, function. I think that it's like a, a public service and a public good to make movies for teenagers. And t- even I think 10 Things I Hate About You is a pretty terrible movie. I've never seen it. It has a huge following. People love it. Okay, so back to the history lesson. And you know how you always get a pop quiz with my history lessons. But I don't have any I don't have any good answers for this. I was thinking, okay, if we made a Shakespeare adaptation now, and I have two people in mind, and that's it, and you're like, who are the two young people who can be Leo? Well, you know and everybody's Claire. picking Timothy Chalamet. Exactly. So all I got was Chalamet. I don't think and you Zendaya. could even make the movie without Dune I mean, already if, did it. If if he turned it down, the studio would probably just close. Like, he's, like <laughs> they, they, don't, they, they wouldn't even make it without him. I mean, he's the only person under 30 that is being, yeah, that and is then, going to be cast in like, any movie. I'll tell you what, I would I put uh, Harry like Styles in Mercutio's role. Ah. Wow. So you guys are going to participate in my, my little thought experiment. Well, it was very easy because there's only one answer for who. I thought Zendaya is a great uh, Juliet. Zendaya is a little... Too smart for Chalamet, perhaps? Not in Dune. She doesn't get much to do in Dune, though. Uh, <laughs> guys, is Boz Lerman's William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet a perfect soundtrack? Do you think we're getting close with this movie? Do you, Heather? What, to, to which question? Uh, well, let's, let's, take it, let's take it movie first. Is the movie made wholly better by its soundtrack? Is the movie made better by its soundtrack? Yes. But not completely, because I think there are replaceable songs in it, and the movie would work yes. just as well or even better. When you, when, yes. and I mean, I'm speaking with the 2020 vision of like, what could I pull out of 1996 with my 25 years of experience of understanding music? So it's kind of cheating. But I think there's some dead spots in the movie and on the soundtrack that keep it from becoming, um, you know, the perfect movie soundtrack. And what about in the, in the, yeah, I agree too, actually. And what about in the other direction? Do you feel like this music is made better in some way by its association with or engagement with the cinematic experience of the movie? Well, I don't want to be so negative about it because there is a symbiotic vibe going on and there is a feel to the movie and a feel to the music that really work together. And when it's successful, it's kind of like 90s exhilarating. It's like, yeah. oh, do you want to touch a 90s nerve and let it shock through your body? Poke at this scene. And it doesn't happen constantly, it's like putting but it's putting your there. tongue on a nine-volt battery. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> that is the perfect metaphor. And then, but the nine-volt battery just says the 90s on it. <laughs> yeah. So, so I don't want to discount it in that way because it does achieve moments and glimpses of it 
very well, I think, with the music and movie working in ta- in tandem together. Yes, there there are there are definitely moments where where they work really well together. I think that the movie and the soundtrack in this instance are doing a pretty beautiful waltzing together. I think that uh, it is like we we have not found it. We should continue on on our. Uh, we should pack up the campsite and like keep heading into the woods. All right. But I but I think that um, I think that the, this movie and and its music offers you, like Matt said, this totally immersive experience that feels cohesive and like it lives within its own artistic and narrative logic, and yeah. that it renders that world and that mood in a way that is. Uh, like really hard to take issue with because it's so carefully crafted and, and in a way that doesn't like strip it of all of its humanity. It's still got some sex appeal. It's still got some rawness. It's still got some uh, surprises and doesn't feel manufactured, even though it's trafficking in like this super theatrical ear real space. And, and, uh, it's not a movie that I loved when it came out or like cared that much about. And it's a, f- but I'm glad, I'm glad that I like took a look back at it. It's a pretty fully realized movie for a second movie from a director. Like you're like, he, you're like, whether, sure. yeah. He, and you're like, whether I like this or not, he's doing what he wants. He has a vision and he's executing it. Um, just with like extreme verve and just going at it. And that, that impressed me. It, Cause I feel like he's easy to take for granted. Cause you can roll your eyes at a lot of, his less successful movies. Um, but this feels like one of his more successful ones, whether you're liking it or not, he's hitting his stride. I will admit that I do not share his sensibilities. So for me, this, this is not uh, a criticism of the movie because it is just speaking to the fact that I, I just don't really dig his movies. Like I, they don't do it for me a lot. I respect a lot of things about this movie the opening 10 minutes yeah. or so I really, really like, like when it basically kind of looks like a, a traffic meets a Scorsese movie at the very beginning or something. Um, but, um, you know, his sensibility doesn't do a lot for me. Moulin Rouge didn't do much for me. And I know a lot of people who think that's, you know, the pinnacle yeah. of this, this kind of genre, whatever this genre is. And uh, yeah, you know, and I hated his great Gatsby, but maybe everybody did. I don't know. The, no, I I don't yeah. I don't like his movies either, but he's definitely carved out a thing, you know. And they're like, oh, he knows he what he's doing. Voice. Yeah, he, he knows has a what voice. he's doing for That's sure. Totally right. He has a voice, and he has an ear, and I I think that that puts him in a pretty in pretty good standing for having a good soundtrack, a good movie soundtrack. Maybe not a perfect movie soundtrack, but he's definitely a got us closer soundtrack. on our search than Judgment Night did for sure. <laughs> What about Dire Straits, Romeo and Juliet? Great song. Stand on that, Big guys. fan. I knew Josh was going to like Big that. fan. Maybe that'll be our outro. Well, what is our next movie, Matt? I you you know I like the uh, the the big picture soundtrack landscape, and I think we're peaking out in the '90s, and I think this is one of the big soundtracks. And I just want to do the behemoth, over the top soundtrack that made everyone oh, no. think about soundtracks, copy oh, no. soundtracks, buy oh, soundtracks, no. rip off soundtracks. It starts with a pulp and it ends with a fiction. I actually, <sighs> I thought you were going to say Forrest Gump. I thought you were going to say Train Spotting. So, <laughs> so Train Spotting and Pulp Fiction are, I feel like the Twin Towers. Maybe that's a bad metaphor. The two big soundtracks that showed everyone what you can do with a soundtrack. I suspect that if you walked down the street and were asking random people if there is a perfect movie soundtrack, a fair number of them would say Pulp Fiction. Oh, I think if we family feud this, number one answer on the board is Pulp Fiction. Number Very two, an- number two answer on the board for people of our uh, like generation is going to be Train Spotting, and the Twin Towers. <laughs> and that is why Matt is referring to them as the Twin Towers. So- <laughs> and we are just the right Al Qaeda. Oh my god! To bring them down. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we got to cut a promo within it. 
I feel bad for blaming Al Qaeda for that. We know it was the Saudis. Of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brother. What they call it? A quarter pounder with cheese in Paris? What do they call it? Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. You got a corpse in a car, minus a head in a garage. Take me to it. Mother... Thanks for listening, and we'd love to hear from you. You can shoot us an email at theperfectmoviesoundtrack at gmail.com or reach out to us on Twitter at tpmspodcast. Let us know what you think, what you're enjoying, what you'd like to hear more of, maybe a soundtrack you're hoping that we'll get to sooner than later. And we'd love it, of course, if you could give us a review or a rating or both on whatever your podcast server of choice is. We'll see you in two weeks. For Heather and Matt, this is Joshua. Thanks for listening.